This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to the South African edition of the Dope Black Woman podcast. The podcast where we share our personal experiences and expertise on topics that impact our daily lives. I'm Romantha Buta, the community lead for Dope Black Women South Africa. Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of Dope Black Women in South Africa. I am Romantha Buta and today's topic is something that I think I've been itching for the rest of the world to know about blackness in South Africa. Um, uh, as some of you might know, I am myself, I'm a colored woman, and we'll get a little bit into that in a moment. But my guest today is someone that I scrolled past while I was reading the news this week. Um, and the, the, the heading of the article said, colored people, not just a stereotype. And I was like, hmm, I need to read this. And so I went into the article and I saw the picture and I was like, who is this vibrant woman? I could just feel her energy through the picture. I need to talk to her. And so, so I decided I'm going to find a way to, to contact her. And um, the person who wrote the article, I got a hold of him and he was, he was just like, okay, let me, let me get you in touch because she's such an awesome person. And I'm lucky to have her on our podcast today. Welcome Dr. Simone Peters. Does it sound a little bit weird hearing that? It still sounds a bit, just a bit odd. <laughs> it's a title that's still new to me. So I still, you know, second guess when people are like Dr. Peters and I'm like, who's that? And then I'm like, oh, wait, that's, that's me. me. <laughs> so just to give you a little bit of a background, uh, Dr. Simone Peters recently graduated from UCT, the best university in Africa and ranked under the top 200 universities in the world. Um, she just recently graduated as a doctor of psychology and her thesis was based on the colored community and uh, just their, their experiences um, how they are more than just a stereotype and trying to change the narrative for the community as a whole. And so I will give you the honors of introducing yourself. I know a lot of people introduce themselves according to their accolades and stuff, um, but you're welcome to do it in any way, whether it's your accolades or whether it is what makes you laugh, what makes you smile, what makes you angry. <laughs> Tell the people who oh, you are. I like that. I like that. So uh, thank you for having me, Domenta. I am Dr. Simone Peters. Um, yeah, as you can see from the laugh, I'm still odd even introducing myself as such. Anyhow, um, yeah, Domenta has gave you, she's given you a, a whole portfolio of myself, but basically finished all of my degrees at UCT, currently a postdoctoral fellow. At UCT, um, I studied in the in the psychology faculty, but now I'm in the anthropology faculty. I lecture a bit. I do a lot of research uh, across a variety of, of domains because I'm interested in, in human beings. And so I tend to be multifaceted in, in such a way. Um, what makes me laugh is definitely my nephew. He gives me joy. But it can also really make me like, what's wrong? Stop crying. <laughs> He's like seven months old. 
Um, but like when he looks at me, when I go that way, he gives me the stare and I told my sister, just him looking at me, you know, just mouth my mouth. And I don't even care. So I'm a proud aunt to one nephew. Then my other siblings, they try, but they know that the baby has stolen my heart and they're okay with it. Oh, cool. So when I'm not the academic sister, I'm the sister who's the elder sister trying to keep them together. Um, yeah, and in my spare time, I am the worshiper that likes to give praise to God to my siblings always know when you ask them what's on Simone's phone no she just has a lot of gospel (laughs) (laughs) so that's um my hobby on the sides um and that's basically Simone in a bit of a nutshell um I want you to give people who are not necessarily from South Africa and and not necessarily very um clued up about the Cape Flats to give them your perspective on your upbringing on the Cape Flats, if you could just briefly give us an idea of what your upbringing was like. So, uh, so with me, so I was, I was born in, in, in Kimberley, which is the Northern Cape. It's a province here in South Africa. Um, and then when my, so my mother's originally from Cape Town. So she divorced my father when I was five. Um, and then she obviously came back home. So I had a very abusive father and he drank a lot. And so my mother actually ran away with us. Um, as the only way of escaping my father. And so my mother left with nothing. She left the clothes behind. She left the furniture. She left with nothing. So then she moved to uh, Cape Town and her, her, her mother's from Bishop Lavis, which is an area on the Cape Flats. Um, and so we, so my granny never had space in her house because in South Africa, so lots of the township places, because people don't have a lot of sort of money, they tend to live in the family home. And so my aunt was, you know, so my aunt was living there with her children. My other aunt was living there, you know. And so it, it becomes that it's, it's a home that my granny had gotten after she was displaced. Um, but it's that thing of my, my aunt, my aunts couldn't find homes. And so they just lived in my granny's house. So my mom obviously now coming with nothing. She then obviously now wanted us to stay there. And so my granny set up like a Wendy house at the back of a house, which is also a common trait in, in South Africa townships where either people are living on, on in shacks or they're living in Wendy houses. Yeah, Wendy houses and, and so forth. And so that was sort of where we lived um, for about a year and so. Um, so for me, living on the K-Flats was... You know, it's, it's, it's one of those mixed feelings because it's, it was a childhood that I loved because my family was there. I remember sitting on my grandpa's lap and he would tell us history and he would tell us about the apartheid. And then my mom then would tell us about the riots. Um, and so, and my grandfather was a very colorful character. He was a fisherman. So he would tell us about how he used to fish and coming back home. Um, and, and so I, I used to love that. So I had, I had a love for history already from my grandpa. And even so my granny had what's known as, um, I don't, it's a yacht in Afrikaans. I don't know, English. It's like, um, like a disco vibe. So my granny used to have a disco, um, built onto a house because it was a way to get extra income. My uncle wasn't working. And so he was basically running the disco. We call it a yacht in, in color terminology. And so I used to, I used to frequent a lot at this disco because I love to dance and there's a lot of colorful people coming in. And so I was always learning the new dance moves. I was playing like these little games. Um, so I used to love that. And if I wasn't doing that, I would like play outside and play marble games where we used to dig holes and then hit the marbles into the little, you know, into the, the little hole thing. So that part of my childhood, I really loved because the community was one of like, there was always laughter, joy, you know, there was always that sense of community. Um, and that's what I really loved about my childhood and, and, and going there a lot, even up until today. Since I've, I moved out of the place, but my granny still loves them, my aunts, my uncles. So I always frequent Bishop Levis. Um, but on the flip side, I also remember one time sitting in my grandparents' home and a group of gangsters came in and they started, you know, um, pointing their guns at us and asking us, where are these people? And if we don't talk, they're going to kill us all. And that sort of, 
that event really also had such an impact on my life because it was a very traumatic experience. And so it was one way. And I think lots of people from Bishop Labors or from the Cape Latin general share that um, sort of experience where you have community and you love the community. But at the same time, you know, you are faced with that criminal element or that gang element and having to navigate and love through that because it is your home um, becomes one of tension because you're constantly having to navigate home, family, love with this criminal activity or this crime sort of thing. Um, with, but so that was sort of my upbringing and, and that sort of, upbringing shaped the way I am today. I am grateful for, for that sort of upbringing and for what I experienced and that shaped where I am today and it shaped the research that I did because I ultimately went to go and do my PhD on the people of Bishop Labors and the community and the young men who reside in that place and have to navigate that space um, through those tensions. I think before we even get to your thesis, I want us to quickly touch on stereotypes because I think that's the main focus of your thesis. Colored mm -hmm. people are a very, as the name suggests, a very colorful group of people. There's yeah. no one group of colored people that are the same. I, for instance, grew up in the yeah. Southern Cape. I grew up in George, mm -hmm. which is about five hours away from Cape Town. And mm -hmm. even in South Africa, there are various geographical kind of colors. So if you grew up mm -hmm. on the Cape Flats, mm -hmm. there are certain characteristics about you, mm -hmm. like you mm -hmm. roll your R's and mm -hmm. you speak a certain way, you eat certain mm -hmm. foods, you foods, mm -hmm. you are typically known as or stereotyped as someone whose front teeth are no longer there, mm -hmm. typically mm -hmm. known as someone who's lighter skinned. If you're from the Northern mm -hmm. Cape, you are most likely going to be very light skinned. You most likely mm. have a different accent mm. and dialect. Sometimes mm. colored people from mm. Cape Town do not understand colored people from Johannesburg. Mm. <laughs> you just don't understand the language. And um, in the biggest scope of blackness, I know I, I'm, it's, mm. I still find it funny here. Um, yeah. In the biggest scope of blackness, we are, we are such a group of intricate um, people who, who have their own nuances, who have their own frame of reference. So perhaps you could just maybe touch on the specific stereotype that you were faced with growing up in the Cape Flats. So I had grown up on the Cape Flats and then I subsequently moved because um, my mom got into a police flat. My mom is a police officer. And so I went to now English schools in the southern sort of suburbs. Um, so my primary school was colored. So there was still a group of, you know, people from all over the Cape Flats. People had twangs, you know. I was not an outsider. I still belonged. Then I got a scholarship to go to a predominantly white school. And this was the first time in my whole life that I felt black. Mm. And I remember the first day of school was actually the first day of school. I sat there and, and so the, the, it was, they were calling the roster and the teacher was asking, are you here? So she would call your name and then you would say, I'm here, miss. And that was the first time I realized that my accent was not like it, it, it was, it was making me an outsider because everybody had high pitched voices. Like I said, colored people, we tend to have very, we, we, we talk very low. <laughs> we yeah. Have a thing about how we talk. And so I was like, oh my gosh. I sat there. I'm like, how am I going to say this? Am I going to go, yes, I don't sound like that. Am I going to go, yes, miss? Am I? And I was like, what? And that was the first time. I, that, I And I remember um, at Varsity, they asked, so we were learning about fan on France, and they asked, when was the first time you felt black? And I was like, that was the first time I felt like I now I knew I was black mm. because my voice was different to the norm. And what was the feeling when you realized that you were the outsider? So for me, it, so that first three weeks was probably the worst of my life because I, lit I literally went home every day and I cried, literally. And I told my mom, I said, I feel so inferior. Um, and because everybody's parents were CEOs, they were all living in mansions. Mm -hmm. And yeah, I'm from a police flat. My mom is a police officer. She's a single mom. 
I have, I am the rough colored because at school people used to see me and they would literally, they would walk in groups. I used to call myself the Moses at school because they would walk in groups the minute I walked. <laughs> you they would literally the part. Sea. They would part. I would part the sea. And I was like, are oh, you joking? Yeah. And it wasn't because of who I was. It literally was because I'm colored and these white girls were scared of colors. So there was this stereotype that if you... Yeah, so for me, it was that stereotype of I'm colored. So now I am, you know, Immediately I'm, I'm, I'm connected to criminality. Yeah, I'm connected to criminality. And then I'd still come from the Cape Flats. So I was immediately a criminal. I was going to hurt them, going to harm them. So people wouldn't, they would like move away from me. If I walked, it would almost like be, they would like be scared of me. And I was like, but I'm not that type of person. And my friends would always be like, Simone, like, why are they like that around you? And I was like, I don't know. I was like, I don't know because, but I was, the more I realized, I was like, it's not because of me as a person. It's because of how I looked. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and the sort of stereotypes that go along with coloredness and coloredness from particular locations, such as the Cape Flats. Um, and so throughout that high school journey, that became, it became that thing because they would tell me, Simone, quickly say, nah, my bro, quickly mm-hmm. talk like, I didn't know, guy. then they'd be like, no, you guys know your slang, you know, like, nah, my bro, mm-hmm. oh, yeah. quickly just, and I'd be like, what, yeah. what, what, and then, and then they would have stupid awards for like the Ham Award if you were very colored. You're kidding me. And the coconut, yeah, and they would have the coconut award for colored who were white. And I'm like, do you Wait, know what that does? Who did these awards? This, this, so it would be like the matrics, the matriculants when they were kind of like leaving the school. Then they would do these sort of awards um, that they would give now to the younger students. So if you were very colored, then you'd get like the Ham Award. And if you were very white, then you'd get the Coconut Award. And I was like, that is very demeaning because um, you weren't doing that with white people. Of course. Yeah. Just for frame of reference, what does Ham mean? So, so ham in, in Cape Town is somebody who is almost very characteristically colored. So the way you talk, say for example, you use the slang of, 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 of colored people on the Cape Flats and mm. they would call you ham. The, your mannerisms, your characteristics. So they have like different hand signals. They're the way they are, their characteristics. Um, I would equate so it to, I would be, equate it to ghetto, <laughs> right? Yes, ghetto. Yeah, yeah. With black people um, in America, that tends to be a term. Yes. Um, then they say, oh my gosh, you're so get Yeah. Mm. So for us, it's like, don't be so hum. Don't be so hum. So if you talk like, yeah, if you talk a bit, you like, you know, then they're like, and my friends, because I used to have like up, up, like colored people who are from good areas. And <laughs> I know what you I wanted to like, say. You <laughs> wanted to say uppity colored. Why don't you just say it? <laughs> <laughs> but you don't like you don't like I get black people who are you know they're out uh, there yes. they they living good in a areas different type class. of thing you know mm. yeah they're in a different class setting to you and so I grew up my mom is very like my family from the Cape Flats they very flat like they're very grounded mm. you know so sometimes I would say I would do ham stuff like I do ghetto stuff yeah and my friends would be like no don't be so ham please like <laughs> just behave yourself and I'm like. Like, it's not, uh, but what's ham? It's who I am. It's part of who I am, you know? Um, and so that, yeah, so that is sort of my schooling experience. And it's funny because it didn't end there because it went into my university experience because my university people would also ask, which gangsters are you affiliated to? What, what gang members do you know? And I'm like, and so I think when I got to my, my, my PhD, I was, I was like, I actually want to tackle this thing of stereotypes on colored people. Um, and I actually want to create alternative narratives, um, into the academic space that, that actually say, actually, let's wait. This is a group of, of people who are different and yet we are treating them as one. So maybe there's something mm. that we need to look at. Um, you know, and so. So my experiences throughout my life, one can say, has, has sort of led me to the to uh, led me to my thesis um, topic. Speaking of your upbringing and the influence that it had on you, why psychology? Was it always the was it always the route you were going to take or not? Or what made you decide to go into that field? So actually, it was not. It was not the, the route um, for me. Um, actually, did not when I studied psychology, I actually didn't know what a psychologist was, to be quite honest. Oh, wow. Um, I had, so I 
wanted to always be a pediatrician. Okay. <laughs> that was okay. Yeah, that was the that was the dream. Um, I was that child at like you know you know like when you're a child and then people get sick. So then you pick up leaves and you're like putting it on Making their goose and, you know, yeah. So I was that person and so I was like, naturally, you know, let me go into a doctor field and then I really, I absolutely love children. And so I was like, okay, a doctor for children, pediatrics. And so I remember grade 10 taking the physics, the biology, because these are the subjects that you needed um, to but at the same time, I also loved acting and I was really good at acting. So my second option was either medicine or to become an actress. So my, my mom's friend said, look, Simone, why don't you go into psychology? Because with psychology, you can still sort of become a child psychologist. Um, yes, it's different to the medicine field, but you can get into humanities quite easily with mm. your points. So go that route, you know, if humanities and psychology is what you like, keep going. Mm. If not, then maybe you can transfer into the medical field. And so that is what I did. At the time, I didn't know what the Hala psychologists did. I didn't know what they were. But I was like, okay, my mom's friend said, this is a good thing to go into. And I trust the judgment. And also, I was like, I just want to go to university. Because I was Mm. like, if I don't go to university, what am I going to do? I'm going to have to go work or or something like that. And I done quite well at school. Um, And so I was like, you know, let, 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 let me go this route. And it's interesting. I went that route and I didn't even have money to study. had no bursary, but I was like, trusting God for a miracle. I'm just going to go with the doors open. Our stories are so similar. Um, From your upbringing to growing up in a a matriarchal house with your grandma, and it's like a family house. That's also my story. Mm. To Mm. not really knowing what to study, but knowing what you're good at. And... And for me, it was languages, so it wasn't like the physics. And I was good at just about a lot of things, and so I had options Mm. to choose. But same thing with me, you didn't have that guidance, right? And if it wasn't for your mom's Mm. friend that at least knew a little bit of information, you wouldn't have Mm. known any better. And same with same with me. Didn't have. I also grew up in a township in in George Mm. and didn't have money to go study. But Mm. I was just like, this is what I want to do. I need a degree. Yeah. I need yeah. a degree to get out of my situation. And mm. I feel like that was pretty much the same story that you had. But that's the other thing. When it yeah. comes to academics, colored people are, we are not necessarily seen as the doctors or the doctorate scholars no. of this world, are we? Mm. Maybe we could just touch on <clears throat> academics in that sense and how we are mm. stereotyped mm. in terms of academics. So, well, if, so in South Africa, I think, you know, colored people are still. Uh, we we are underrepresented in the academic spaces. So I remember at when I got into the university space, how little coloured people they were. So in South African universities, a majority of the students will be our African black population or our white population. And so coloured people are still under 10% being represented at the university level. And as you go to postgraduate studies, so in my honors, we were about, we were 40 in the class and we were only eight coloreds. In my masters, we were six and I was the only colored. In my doctor, in my doctorate level, my level, I was the only colored. Um, and when I graduated, we were 11 who graduated and I believe we were only two who graduated in that cohort. Um, and so that, and I remember, so I became a tutor and a lecturer because of that, because lots of colored people were telling me, you know, we are, we see, so we, we see African black women. Yes, they are still very little, but we see them, but we are not seeing enough colored women. So it almost feels like we don't belong in the space. And when I heard a student tell me that I was like, you know, I'm in the space, let me go and go and teach so that they can see, they can see themselves in me and be represented in the space, you know. And for me, that was one reason why I went um, further because I had seen a colored woman who had come to teach. Um, and I was like, I want to be like her. She's 
like she's got it all together she's coming to present and, I, and i'm like no i want to be like her and to be like her i need to go and get the doctorate you know and so representation really mattered um it mattered to me you know and so i then said you know let me stay in this space because we are so underrepresented mm. and i remember one friend another girl had said because i said to her i got a doctorate and she was like you know you're the first colored person i know who has a doctorate Sure. And for me, it, that speaks, it speaks volumes because there are so little of us getting degrees, um, because it's known that, and, and the stereotype isn't colored people get doctorates. The stereotypes are other things like colored young women will get pregnant. Pregnant and leave um, school. That's what we're known for. Yeah. We'll leave school and we get pregnant at like 15, 16, 17. That's all we're good for, for getting pregnant. And then having a lot of kids and then becoming a burden on sort of the social services of our family. Yeah. That's that's the narrative for young colored girls on the Cape Flats. Yeah. Um, not the one where you go and pursue an education. And for me, so I use my platform to go back to those young girls and be like, you know, if I could do it. I, was, I came from a Wendy house at the back of my granny's house. And this is where I am today. And it's, I also, my mom didn't have money. Um, my mom was also on a government salary. She was also pushing through. And if I can do it, there's no reason why you can't also do it. Um, and so, and, and for me, it's been very humbling when I heard young girls, some from Bishop Labour, some from other sort of Cape Flat areas say, you know, thank you, Simone. Because of you, I've gone to go in and do a degree because I'm like, we, we need more of our brothers and sisters in the university space. And, and I know, Colored people fall into the black category. And so when we look at how many black people are in, in universities, we're like, oh, it's good because it's Might about 60%. Seem good. Yeah. Yeah. It looks good because we're like, oh, it's about 60%. So we're like, oh, that's great. You know, there's transformation. But if we break out, if we actually break down in the black category, um, and then be like, how many people are colored? How many people are Indians? How many people are African black people? Mm. And for me, a statistic that, that shocked me was that our colored people, uh, so there's for the proportion of colored people in South Africa, we are we have a very high percentage in the prison system. Oh yeah. And for me, I was like, you know, that needs to that needs to like change. Instead of us having a high percentage in the prison system, we have to start having high percentages in a university system. Uh, but that that has a lot to do with a lot of systematic racism and systematic structures. You know. Yeah. Um, that needs to have. That needs to change and alter because there are reasons why that system looks the way that system looks. Um, yeah. But yeah. Why the topic for your thesis? And and maybe just run us through how you you decided on it, uh, what your findings were mm-hmm. in your interviews with, mm-hmm. with colored people. Perhaps maybe if you interviewed different kinds of colored people, because as I mentioned in the beginning, we really are not a homogenous group who looks the same and sounds mm-hmm. the same. So how did you decide yeah, on that? Yeah. So I had done my master's with sex workers of color, black sex workers in, in Cape Town. And so I remember talking to colored men at the time and, and listening to their experiences. Lots of them had come from the Cape Flats. Um, and so I wanted to delve more into that for my PhD because with this, I was focusing predominantly on sex work. Um, but in listening to their experiences of racism and the experiences of being stereotyped, I was like, you know, there's, there's something that I want to dig into, um, in, into that because the, the experiences were so heartfelt mm. and it was so heartbreaking because the one guy would tell me, you know, he would say to you know, Simone, um, I get sh- like, I'm a walk in the streets and then the police will just come and shake me. And it's not because I'm a sex worker. It's because I'm a colored and therefore they think I'm a gangster. Mm. And hearing that sort of narrative, I wanted to know, you know, is it, is it something experienced by lots of colored men or is it like, you know, just, just this one, mm. one instance? And if it is experienced by multiple colored men, how do they understand the stereotypes against them? And how are they navigating those stereotypes in a post-apartheid South Africa? And then another thing that sort of shook me with this group was the thing of coloredness. So I had spoken to them about the experience of being a colored in South Africa and saying how I could relate. And they were like, actually, you can't relate because you are white colored. Mm. And so in hearing that, I was like, okay, then there's something about this identity of coloredness. Yeah. Because now he is saying there's something about 
class was coloredness because it was assumed that I come from an upper class because I had a UCT degree yeah. at the time. Um, I was talking English and so mm-hmm. I was categorized as the other colored, um, as this white colored. And so I wanted to also know what makes one a colored. Um, you know, what is it about this category? And what makes one a white colored? A white colored and what make, and, and, and the spectrum of, of coloredness, what does it look like? Are other colored talking the same about that, you know? Um, and, and so I chose, so I chose those, that, so what is coloredness? And then the sort of conversation about stereotypes and colored men and their experiences was something that I also wanted to tackle. And so that's how I sort of came up with my PhD topic, which was essentially researching race, space and masculinities in Bishop Labors. Um, and so in, after my master's, I taken a break. And in that time, I had done intergenerational work. And so I started having conversations with the older people in Bishop Labors. And I found their stories so gripping about um, the apartheid state and about being displaced. And lots of narratives I used to hear came from District 6. So I only used to hear about District 6. And I never knew that people were, you know, displaced from... So my granny, they were living in Gurud Akas, which is another place here in Cape Town, and they got displaced. Um, and I was like, you know, there's something so interesting about this, these stories and how there's sort of this intergenerational trauma that never gets dissolved and then it leaks onto, you the know... The next generation. Yeah. Young colored men and the next and the next, you know. And so I wanted to also explore that. And so my thesis sort of sort of started taking a life of its own. So I would, I took different parts of, of what I was doing and I was like, you know, let me put it all together and let me create this thesis that looks at, you know, this this area of Bishop Labors. How is it constructed? Um, let's like, look at the, co- the conversations that all the colored people are having um, about their experience of displacement, um, their experiences. What did you hear? And I remember this one uncle, because I, I went to the old age home in Bishop Labors, and the one uncle telling me how he waited for his mother on the train tracks, and the police officer came, and he, he was apparently on the wrong side, and he said that he got beaten up so badly, and even to, to, to today he's like eight years old, and he says at that time he was like a 15-year-old boy, but he still remembers that as if it happened to him yesterday. Um, and I remember this one auntie. So she had spoken about colorism in her family and her mother was white and her father was a black man, which already was illegal. And so she was very dark. Her mom had created, had made dark, dark children. And she used to tell me how whenever they went to the, like on the bus, whenever they went to the train, her mom would always be stopped because it's like, how are these your children? Mm. Um, you know, and, and, and telling me about, you know, how it was being a black child to a white mother in an apartheid state and the trauma that came with that and um, listening to their stories of how they grew up in these mixed communities where they were friends with white kids, they were friends with um, black children, um, they were friends with colored, they, they, were, they were community and all of a sudden it was just taken yeah. away from them. Telling, like, telling me stories how their parents were just given notices to move or else they will be forcibly moved if they don't move and then being told you're going to go to this new place and I mean at the time my granny said Bishop Labors was a ghost town no water no electricity there was no lights it was just dark toilets were outside it was now a four-bedroom house coming from a big house where there was lights there was water there was this mm-hmm. whole group of mixed races and now going to a place where they only saw colored people yeah there was all the infrastructure that was gone. This place was not even developed and having everything stripped of them and having to start all over again. Yeah. Um, and those were, and those were narratives that were like, it was coming out from most of my participants of how their homes were stripped away from them and being placed into basically like dumps because at the time the apartheid government just wanted to get them out of white areas. There's still lack of infrastructure. And so we have intergeneral poverty, um, poverty in those areas because there is still that lack of resources and, and putting resources into those areas. And so just hearing that those sort of narratives, um, getting, getting told that because I think as young people, we tend to not yeah, the history so much. And when we get told about apartheid, it yes. tends to be Nelson Mandela and 
Nelson Mandela and you know um, yeah. very little to be here about our Ashley Creels yeah. and our Anton Francis um, and so hearing their stories about fighting in the struggle um, hearing this old people say about how Bishop Labus was part of the riots we might not have time to run through all of it but I think it's important for us mm. to touch on the divide that the apartheid government established and that is still sort of visible yeah. in our communities yeah. and in our spaces yeah. So as yeah. Dope Black, we acknowledge that we are a black community, but it is also mm-hmm. important for us to look at the nuances of the black community, and this is one of them. Mm-hmm. So in terms of the architecture or architecture, sorry, of um, apartheid, it was designed by mm-hmm. a psychologist. Verwurt was a mm-hmm. psychologist himself, so he knew mm-hmm. what the impact of the divide and conquer rule would have for generations to come. Mm-hmm. And so from a psychological perspective, we've spoken about our communities being displaced, black people, colored people, Mm. Malay people living in unison Mm. in a community that was Mm. called District 6, which was sort Mm. of a utopia for them at the time and Mm. being removed Mm. from a seemingly white suburb to the outskirts Mm. of Cape Town, Mm. where they had no infrastructure, Mm. no means of getting to work and back being totally discarded and and excluded Mm -hmm. from the rest of society. Mm -hmm. What Mm -hmm. impact does that have on how the colored community sees itself and also how we still buy into the narrative of colored versus black? Because I think Mm -hmm. that's important for us to touch on that the colored community Mm -hmm. were given a lot more benefits than the black community. Mm -hmm. We were still poor. Mm But we lived in better structures, we could get into certain yeah. jobs, we could study certain mm-hmm. things. And so what yeah. did that divide create in our psyche today that we are mm. still struggling mm. with and that perhaps you found uh, in your research? Mm. If we look at sort of the apartheid state, um, and so with the Group Areas Act of 1950, that's when they started to sort of, you know, have the Bantu stands for the African Black people and then have sort of the... Cape Flats areas for the colored people. Mm. And then they would have their white areas for their white people. And then we also had the Classification Act, which was the first time that race actually became like a construct where it was the colored and then they would define the colored as neither black or white. Then we would have the black person who was part of the tribes, um, your Isikosa, Zulus, Twan, etc. And then your white people who were your colonialists, your Dutch, your English, we had a lot of colonial people, <laughs> predominantly the Dutch and the English, yeah. And so, so with the classifications, it was a way, it was a way for the white establishment or bar- apartheid government to establish the sort of hierarchy, right? And in creating the hierarchy, you make, you make certain groups believe that they are better than the other, right? And it's, yep. and it's what, I know in America they have, they had the field, I don't know if I can say the N word, but that the field ends and then the house ends, you know, which is to create that sort of hierarchy yeah. between this one category. And so the apartheid government did that because colored people were the people. Of, so there's there's a, a history or conversation that's had about how colored people were the product of the sort of in inter um, actions between white, our white colonial people and then your African women. Um, and so with that history, there's a lot of shame attached to colored identity because it said that we made, we are products of rape, of rape. Um, because, because, you know, the, the colonists would rape us or there are jokes that Jan van Riebeek is the grandfather of all colored people. And, and so, and, and in that history, right, um, there was that sort of conversation while some, some theorists, will say or argue that there's a shame attached to the colored identity because it's that thing of we don't really belong because the white people don't want us and the black people don't want us. So we just, this, this people like in the middle, that's just the lack, you know? And I remember there was a quote by F.W. de Klerk's wife, Marissa, I believe, mm-hmm. who said leftovers. colored people are the leftovers. Yeah. They the, the leftovers. They what was they the ones that was left over. And it was the same about a joke. I think she said, they are what is left once the country was sorted. Yes, yes. So it's almost like, you know, we're the afterthought of God. We're the kids of Ham. Yeah. Um, the afterthought of God, you know. And it's, and so 
they becomes in this complex thing of colored people wanting to almost be like their white counterparts because we are almost white. Yeah. Because we have this half white and then we also have this black, but we tend to hang on to this whiteness mm-hmm. in us. For survival. Um, I, yeah, it is for survival because at the time, I mean, I remember my grandmother, her grandfather told her, go and learn. So my grandmother grew up in the Eastern Cape. Her father was a black man. Her mother was a colored. And my grandfather, my great grandfather told her, go and learn Afrikaans. Go and learn the language of the white man because you will get, you will go further. You will get more. Yeah. To learn. And so for my granny, she never learned the Bantu languages. She went to go learn Afrikaans because she knew if she knew Afrikaans, she was going to get better opportunities which would have better outcomes for her. We haven't even begun to touch on the reclassification clause that where people could go and get reclassified again. And I had I had some of our family members that because we had we have some white looking colored family members um, and they got reclassified as white. And so you had families of colored people where you would have coloreds white and then some would get classified as black African black people, but they were all colored. Um, and so the classifications really also broke up families. And because of the, the not the group, the, we had the other act where races couldn't, the immorality act where races couldn't um, interact with each other, couldn't be with each other. Yeah. So we had our families not seeing each other until 1994 when the clauses all broke, you know. And so I think with colored people, because of that, that apartheid sort of hierarchy, we then, because it was a way of survival, we then learned to associate more with our white counterparts. And so we tried to almost not be white, but do as much things that are white. So the Afrikaans or straighten our hair mm-hmm. um, and, and move away from things that made us African. Mm-hmm. And so in my findings, I would hear when they talked about the spectrum of, of coloredness, then there would be, you know, sort of the white coloreds. And these were the coloreds who were like white people, would get educated, um, would have good manners, um, would go to these elite institutions, they would speak English or they would speak your savor Afrikaans versus your sort of on the spectrum of your pure coloreds or your bad coloreds who were these sort of ham characters, spoke very ham Afrikaans or your cops Afrikaans. And for me, that spoke to this colonial legacy that we still internalize where we internalize goodness and all these achievements with whiteness. And if a colored person is achieving that, then they are like the white man. And if they are not, they are like the black people who were also stereotyped by the apartheid as these lazy people, as good for nothings, Mm -hmm. you know. And so you don't want to be like the good for nothings. You want to be like your white counterparts um and it's not just you know it's not just within i think it's within the whole black community where we 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 will do things that are closer to whiteness because we've been so constructed to think anything white is good Mm. so we change the way we talk because we need to assimilate into spaces because if we talk this and that people are not going to see us in the same way mm-hmm. people are not going to acknowledge us in the same way if our hair is cruz and it's big and it's this now we're unprofessional because it's not you know oh, white yeah. that's sanitized you know and so it it it's it's a it's a problem that we still see in sort of our, our black communities um and it's and it's and it's a history that will that will take a while to decolonize like it's going to take some time to decolonize our minds because we've been fed with anti-blackness for as long as we can remember what would it take i think there's it starts with awareness having a conversation because with me i remember hearing the anti-blackness in colored people and then going to them you know and, and actually talking to them about what do you think blackness is? Do you know that we are black? Mm-hmm. Do you know of Steve Biko's blackness and that he tried to go with black is beautiful? And what does this mean? And why do we say this is cruel and ugly and straight there is not? You know, so first unpacking this, the sort of things that we've internalized about ourselves. Mm-hmm. You know, so sitting with ourselves and going, Simone, like, why do you think having straight there is better than mm-hmm. your cruel? Let's have that talk. 
Mm. And then going, actually, no, people said, you know, straight hair is nicer, it's better. Why is it nicer? Because it's more like white people. Mm. Starting, and so having that conversation and having that conversation with your family, like what are the things that we've internalized um, and then start like having, and then start to break that down. Like, why do we think like this? Let's understand where it comes from. And let's see, how do we now move forward from that? I was, I was telling a friend of mine the other day, I was like, um, I did, like, I did this work on stereotypes and every now and then I catch myself still stuck in that because I'm like, when I go to the doctor's practice and I'm like, why do I go and choose? I go look for white doctors. Mm. And it's like, I was fed that, I was fed that, that, you know, white black doctors better. don't know what they're doing. Yeah, White is better. And I was like, Wait, that's a stereotype you have about black people as yeah. well. Wait, and so I had to sit with myself and I'm like, I need to acknowledge that. One of our four key pillars is healing in dope black women and dope black as an entire community and space. Um, and as much as we talk about how, you know, we have internalized anti-blackness, we also still have very much externalized anti-blackness. So recently, riots broke out in South Africa and stores were looted and because black people are the majority in south africa and black people are the people who have been impoverished for centuries for as long as we've been colonized we are going to be the majority of people that go out there and loot and so i know mm. that in the colored community which is also my community the older folk and sometimes the younger people as well have these outward negative stereotypical conversations that they have in their households mm -hmm. about black people mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. what do we need to do to bridge that divide between the two of us because we've spoken about what we should do as colored people to yeah. stop ourselves mm -hmm. from being anti-black but in terms of the mm -hmm. hurt that we've inflicted on black people calling them mm -hmm. next to nothing mm -hmm. calling them the k-word mm -hmm. The K word is equivalent yeah, yeah. to the N word in elsewhere in the world. So it is just as offensive, but mm -hmm. if probably not worse for us because mm -hmm. we haven't embraced it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So colored mm -hmm. people also call black people the K word and not in a, mm -hmm. oh, my homie, my, my, no. Mm -hmm. It's a very derogatory way of using the word. Yeah. And so we know in our, in our families, in our extended families, that these things still happen. What is our responsibility as colored people who know better? So I think I think it's it's one that I've taken up in my family and some of my siblings as well have taken up and that's to challenge um these conversations and it's very difficult because I mean my oh, yeah. family when I start then they're like, Oh, yeah, she comes again. Yeah, you know, and so and but it's but it's that thing of if I just allow it they're going to think it's okay. Of course. And I would hate for them to think it's okay. Yeah. And it was, I mean, just the other day, when we were talking about the looting, they were saying these Ks. And I said to them, I said, and I said to um, my family members, I said, do you know if the police was here or a black person was sitting here, they could send you to jail for that word. Do you know that? Yeah. Um, and then my granny was like, well, I am, I am an African black person. So I was like, so then why would, oh my, why would you use that mm. word? Mm. I was like, you know, that word was used to sort of um, make these people feel like less than human. And you're using so it in a derogatory sense now. Exactly. So I was like, so why would we, why are we going to be using that? So I always remind my family and I always say, you know that we are black, right? Mm. And I was like, you know, actually, we technically had to look at it. We're more African black than colored. Because it's like, we've, we have Isikosa people from the Eastern Cape. I have Sutu family from Kimberley. So I was like, why do we not acknowledge that we are black? Like, we are black. Mm -hmm. You always have to be politically correct. You know what my mom, my mom would tell me? She would say, oh, she can't say anything around me because she has to watch her words. And I said, rightfully so. Watch your words yeah. so that you do not say things that are offensive. Exactly. And, it's, and you know what? Exactly. It's not outright offensive, you know. Sometimes it's really yeah. a case of, Sh I've, shit, I've been thinking about this thing for, for decades like so this. Long. And mm -hmm. no one has yeah. confronted me with any alternative, yeah. Yeah. right? So my mom, yeah. for instance, she had a big, big problem with calling black people black she would call them african mm -hmm. and i'm like okay what does that okay. mean because you're african too 
Yeah, so as well. yeah. what does it actually mean? What are you actually saying? And then she's like, oh, you know what I mean? Every time I say something, you just have to correct me. And I'm like, because I want yeah. you to acknowledge that this is the correct term what to use and you're not being yeah. offensive. But if you're using this one, it is offensive mm. and this is what it means. Mm. And so I feel like yeah. the older generation yeah. is a little bit harder to convince otherwise or to teach but we shouldn't give up. Do you have hope for the younger generation? I think, you know, the older people, it's almost like you can't teach, uh, what is it, the old dog Yeah. Um, and I think actually, like, I keep having these conversations with my grandmother because she also likes using the K word a lot. Oh, goodness. And I keep using this, this, and I keep, whenever she says it, I will always have a conversation with her. And I'm like, you know, this word, just like when people called colored people hot notes, um, you did not appreciate that terminology. You know, and, and, and then I always get, rem- and then they will always say, you know, uh, you always think it's just us, mm-hmm. but you know, the black people also talk like this about us. Mm-hmm. They also, um, call us what, what or not. And, I, and I'm like, and then for me, it was like, that's the issue mm-hmm. that we do not see each other as fellow brothers and sisters. Yep. We see each other as the enemy. And that's when I always know what Buddha is one. And we create divides amongst ourselves even. Like you said earlier on, the Cape colored, the Jobo colored, the Northern Cape colored, the Eastern Cape colored, the white colored yeah, and the Kham colored. The you know, there's so colors, many, exactly. there's so many hierarchies Divisions. we create for ourselves that exactly. we need exactly. to stop. So just for exactly. me to, just for me to wrap this entire session up, I could go on and talk about this <laughs> forever. Um, but I think we need to ration the amount of information we give people. So um, I'm happy yeah. that you joined us today. Just before we close, we always ask this for everyone that comes on our podcast. What makes you a dope black woman? We've heard about all your work. We've heard about your fun times. But what do you think makes you a, a dope black woman? I think what makes me dope is my driving life. Sort of having this perseverance that no matter what life throws at me, I'm going to push forward. I'm going to go and reach the ceiling. I'm going to go and reach for higher than the stars, higher than the moon, you know, and I'm going to take my, my fellow women of color with me. I believe that, you know, we don't get to the top for ourselves. We get to the top for others mm-hmm. and we need to pull others with us. Speak it, woman. Because of empowered woman, empowered woman, empower woman. Yep. Um, and so I think that that makes me dope and that's it thank you so much everyone for joining this has been such a pleasure having Simone on our pro on our podcast I can't wait for the next episode to bring you some more perspective from South African women uh, on their experiences of being dope black women Thank you so much for joining us this week. For more content, follow us on Dope Black Women 1 on Instagram and Twitter. To join our community, drop us an email on South Africa at dopeblackwomen.org. See you next week.